morning. That was a nice and exciting Christmas video, wasn't it? Um, but listen, we are excited uh, for where we're heading. Uh, Lawrence, I'm going to put this over here somewhere if that's okay. Cool. Um, we are excited for where we're going uh, for Advent. Um, that is right around the corner. It's here, actually. And we're going to jump into that series on December 12th, but we want to do uh, uh, kind of plug it for you now. Um, much of what we feel and anticipate uh, in our Christian experience now as we await the coming of our Savior is very similar to what uh, the Old Testament Jews were awaiting on for the first coming uh, of the Savior, right? And so um, we are um, in that tussle, and we love Christmas, and we love the lights, and we love the, the show, uh, but deep beneath it, we, we want our Savior, don't we? We want him to, to come again, and we celebrate that he did come, and we look forward to, uh, to him coming again. And so that's where we're going to focus our attention, starting at December 12th. With all that said, let me go ahead and just plug next Sunday for you as well. Next Sunday, Teen Challenge, uh, Teen and Adult Challenge, they're going to be coming, and they're going to be joining us in our service, and they're going to be sharing from the Word and sharing some testimonies. It's a wonderful ministry, and we've recently struck up uh, a partnership with them, and so they are now on our uh, missions budget, and that's super, super cool. Uh, to have them. So they're going to come. We're going to celebrate that with them. They're going to share some stories. And let me go ahead and also say next weekend, not only is Teen Challenge uh, doing the service for us, but Jeff McIntosh is inviting you all to come and hear about this awesome opportunity uh, in town called the Hope House, um, where it will be somewhat of a refuge um, for families in crisis on their way to foster care and in that whole system. And so they're looking for people uh, to help staff and volunteer this house. And so he wants to share that vision with you. And if you are interested in that, could you let him know that you're coming by signing the, uh, uh, the, the sheet out in the connect room there? You can see it out there, and that'll be next Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Is that correct? Cool. And so, please, please come to that. Lot of, a, lot, a lot on top of us, right? There's a lot here. Also, on top of all of this, we're wrapping up a nearly a full year's worth of a preaching series in 1 Timothy. And so, it feels like a big deal. Um, not normally do people take almost a year to get through six chapters, but that's something that we do, and we're proud of it, right? We love expository preaching and taking our time to really unpack the scripture. So that's where we're going to go today, but first let me start in prayer. Our God, thank you so much for the time that we have today to celebrate in worship, to celebrate in baptism. God, it's just awesome um, what you're doing, um, the way that you've just started this new fiscal year for us, and uh, the, the way that we've been able to fill up this tank as people declare uh, their lives and give them to you. We're so grateful for that. We ask that you continue that work through this year. God, we pray for us now as we wrap up this preaching series, series that you would give us grace, uh, give us understanding, um, convict where needed, encourage where needed. Give us what we need so that we can effectively reach this culture and reach this uh, next generation uh, with the love and hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Burden us for this, God, and let us get out of our own way in, in, in order to make it all happen. And we ask that you do this work among us in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, 1 Timothy, chapter 6, we're going to be looking at the last two verses. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, get there. While you're getting there, I'll share something with you that might be surprising. Uh, I've been on staff here this February. It'll be 15 years, which is surreal to me because I feel like a child, right? So uh, to, to think that I've done anything for 15 years is pretty, pretty weird. But maybe what would surprise you even more is that I've been playing drums at this church much longer than that, almost 20 years. Uh, in fact, it goes so far back that I remember when the drums were first introduced to this church. 
and it was a blast. It was, it was a great time for this church, right? Um, and so quickly, after we made that transition into drums um, and trying to incorporate that into our worship set, we, we quickly made the transition from an acoustic set, or what I like to call a real drum set, which is this, to an electric drum set. An electric drum set, all the sound is digital, so it goes right into your headphones or right into the speakers, and you have full control. And so it was something we needed to use um, in order to have effective uh, worship where the drums aren't overpowering and not clashing with the music, right? What, you know, to play real drums, as you witnessed today with the master, uh, Zach Stewart, you know, it takes some dynamic responsibility in order, in order to make that happen. It's kind of difficult. Even so, it's way better. Real drums are way better, okay? I'm just telling you that. Um, I bought an electric drum set not that long ago, and I played it uh, for a good couple weeks, and then it finally became my time of the month to, to play with the worship band. Now, I've owned this kit forever. I've owned these cymbals forever. I know this drum set like the back of my hand. I've, just, I've had this kit for, for, for almost a decade, right? So usually when I sit at it, there's just not anything cool about. I mean, it's just another drum set, right? At this point in time, it's just become routine. It's become normal. But after playing my electric, electric kit for two weeks, I sat at this thing, and it was like I was getting into a Lexus. You know what I mean? It's like everything is just how it should be, right? The stick comes off the heads and off the, off the cymbals how it's supposed to. It just feels right in my hands. It sounds better. Um, all of that to say, we just love the real thing. I would easily uh, um, give away uh, my uh, electric set in order, if somebody could have just an acoustic set that I could, you know, sound control in my house so I don't drive my family insane and my neighbors insane, I'd give it up because the real thing is just better. It's just, it's just better. It's intrinsically, experientially better, right? And we love the real thing. You do too, right? Uh, I would rather play golf than watch golf, right? I would rather play basketball than watch basketball. And I have maybe about two more years for that to actually be the case, and then that'll, that'll transition, right, because of my knees. My knees hurt, right? We like uh, uh, live band performances instead of just listening to, you know, the CD, or should I say the MP3, right? CDs aren't a thing anymore. We just like the real thing. We'd rather have face-to-face -face relationships, right, over, over followers and friends on social media, right? So maybe I crossed a line there. Most of you are like, no, that's not true. I need those likes, you know? But in general, we like the real thing. And listen, the same is true with faith. The same is true. I mean, if you have the opportunity to engage in a conversation or to just see somebody who is marked by real faith do the work of the gospel, that is just intrinsically a better experience. The same is true when it comes to faith. Your faith, my faith, the more sincere it is, the more real it is, the more genuine it is, the more it blesses our world, the more people are refreshed by it, and the more effect the gospel has on this culture and on the people around us. Right? And in January 17th of this year, we began our preaching journey in a series that we called First Timothy, A Sincere Faith. That was the tagline we put on it, and we took that from 1 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 5. That's a word Paul uses, so I want to invite you quickly as we start here to go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and read these verses with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the apostle Paul just greets Timothy, right, opens up the letter, and then in verse 3, he gets into the content. He gets into what he's 
you know, talking about and essentially sets the tone for the rest of the letter. Verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. There it is. Sincerity of faith. And through the entirety of this epistle, and even right there, we've begun to piece together what a sincerity of faith is. And to bottle it into two things. First of all, as he says here, it is one that is founded upon not false doctrine, but good doctrine, right doctrine, good theology, truth, right? A sincere faith is founded upon truth. Not only that, but it also works in unison with your mind, that's your conscience, right? And your heart. He talks about the purity of heart to produce a love that overflows from your living. So if I could just bottle it up, a sincere faith is good theology proven by a life of love. A sincere faith is good theology proven by a life of love. It is, it is truth applied in love. We see this through the scriptures. One wonderful example, one that you all know. We, we did a sermon series here one time through Ephesians. And Ephesians, there's six chapters. The first three I can only describe as just rich, solid, good theology and doctrine. It's as deep as you go in the New Testament. The second half of the book, the second three chapters, it's all about your life in response to that truth. And this is how he starts that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Right? All of that truth, all of that theology, it comes down to how you live. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The idea is that your life, the way you love, the overflow of love that comes out of your life, it paints the picture of where you stand with truth. It paints the picture of what you truly believe, of your truth, of the doctrine that you claim, right? Your actions, your life, it paints that picture for others. And if you have nothing within you inclining you to humility and to love and to patience and peace, then your issue is not to be justified and just chalked up to just a sad upbringing or a cold but, you know, harmless personality. That's, that's just the way he is, you know. He's just not friendly, but that, it's just a personality thing. No, the, the issue is insincerity. That somehow the conversion's not happening. That the truth you profess is just merely merely a, a theoretical. It's social, but it's not practical. And if it's not practical, then it's not useful for the kingdom of God. It is truth that pays away for a sincerity of faith. Without genuine, without it, genuine faith is impossible. With it, so that's the call today, with it, lives are changed. People are changed. You're changed. Communities are changed. The church it lives for the true purpose of the kingdom of God. So now, almost a full year later, we are here, and we're wrapping up this letter in 1 Timothy, and the call is exactly the same as it was at the start. It's exactly the same. Hold fast to truth. Hold fast 
to truth. And so I want to invite Chris Mathis up, who's going to read uh, our passage this morning. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it's the final two verses. And if you are capable, would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning? Good morning, Chris. Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from the faith by following uh, such foolishness. May God's grace be with you all. Awesome. Thank you. Short and sweet. You can have a seat. So that's where we're at this morning, and what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time just looking at four observations from this passage that I think uh, uh, we can be encouraged by, and then what we're going to do is just kind of have a candid moment where we talk about how this should play out in the church and our individual lives as well, okay? So Paul, once again, encourages the people, right? Encourages the people in the same way that he encouraged them at the start of the letter. He encourages Timothy in the same way, but he's not being repetitive because he's nervous, He's not being repetitive to, uh, you know, fill pages on a sheet like I did, you know, how I got through college. Just try to say the same thing in a different way. It's not that. And the reason we know that is because, one, Paul is just, he was just way better than that, right? He's the Apostle Paul. That's not something he gave himself to. But, two, there is some unseen but implied burden that we see right here in these verses, right at the start, where he says, Timothy. Right? Now, in your English translation, it might not say this, but in some of them it does. It says, actually, Oh, Timothy, right? There's an interjection there. There's an expression there, and it's heavy. It's a burden. It's passionate. It's, it's, it's as if Paul knew that he was coming to the end of this inspired work to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, and his passion and his emotion is welling up, and he says, oh, Timothy. That's how you would read it if you were reading it in the original language. Oh, Timothy, Guard what has been entrusted to you. And I just love this burden, this passion. And we don't see it a ton in the scriptures, but we do see it in other places. I'll give you a few just because I think this is powerful, right? First of all, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, he uses it. He doesn't use it anywhere else in 1 Timothy, but he uses it in chapter 6 as he's winding down and as his emotion is welling. And he says in verse 11, but you, man of God, or it's implied, but what you could also read it as is, but you, oh, man of God, right? There's a weightiness to it. You can feel it. It's used elsewhere in Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 33. The apostle Paul unpacks, I mean, if you don't believe in God's sovereignty or if you have issues with that, then you'll have no chance getting through Romans 11. Because in Romans 11, what the apostle Paul is trying to describe is how God, in his sovereignty, actually handed his own people over to disobedience so that his kindness and mercy could extend to the masses, right? And how in God's perspective, this is good and right. And in our perspective, we have a hard time reconciling that. And Paul's trying to give that a shot until at some point, I think he's just overcome with just the greatness and sovereignty of God that he breaks out in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, in just praise. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. He wells up again in emotion, almost like it caught him off guard. We see Jesus use this interjection, and I love this story. We barely have time for this, but this is our Savior, and it's just, it's just him. And I, so I just want to share it in Matthew chapter 15, uh, verse 22 through 28. There's this story where he encounters this Canaanite woman, and it says, Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, 
Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely tormented by a demon. Jesus did not say a word to her. His disciples approached him and urged him, send her away because she's crying out after us. And he replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, not to the Canaanites, not to the Gentiles, as he's saying. She responds, she came to him, knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered, it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Right? Jesus wasn't a racist. He's, he's playing off what the disciples are thinking, and he's teaching them a huge lesson that his grace and his salvation goes to all. But he's saying what they're thinking so he can teach them a lesson, right? And so she says, Jesus replied to her, woman, your faith, sorry, yes, Lord, she said, verse 27, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus replied to her, woman, or should I say, Oh, woman, oh, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that mo moment, her daughter was healed. Almost like Jesus was caught off guard by the faith of this woman. Overcome, his emotion welled up. Oh, woman, right? You can see the depth there. There's a gravity there. And all that to say, Paul is using the same expression here in First Timothy as he's winding down this letter, oh, Timothy, I can't tell you how important this is, the most important thing. Oh, Timothy. I imagine tears in his eyes, trembling in his hands, burden in his heart as he is penning these words to his son in the faith, Timothy. And so what does he say? Well, he, said, he gives him a military charge, right? He says, guard what has been entrusted to you. I say with full burden and full importance and full urgency, Guard what has been entrusted to you. This gospel, this truth, this wealth and richness of, uh, of, of good doctrine and theology that you have handed down to you through myself as the Apostle Paul and through your family and through every Guard it. Guard it because it's been entrusted to you. This is a charge. It's a military charge. And it literally means to, to keep protective eyes on, to guard and to protect the theology and the gospel that was entrusted to him. This is not some inconsequential thing that you do if you have time. It's something that you fight for passionately as if the threat and the risk are real. And they are very real. There's a reason for the gravity of this. Right? And the reason is because of the nature of truth. Truth by nature is from God. That's, that's big enough of a deal already, right? Truth is from God. It's not from man. It's not from Hollywood. It's not from culture. It's not from yourself. It's not from any of these things. Truth is from God and God alone. And truth doesn't just come to bless your life, but it also comes to be purposed through your life to the people who also need it. So it's from God to be used. That's the nature of truth. It was never meant to just land with you. It was to be it was never to be passive or complacent, but what comes with truth, what comes with this charge to guard what has been entrusted is also this responsibility that believers had and that Timothy had to guard this. And there's this extra level of, uh, of, uh, of responsibility here. I think as believers, I, we, we often see truth as this great, magnificent gift, something that we cherish and, and own. And it's good. That's right. But sometimes we can detach that from any responsibility that may come with it. We get to the point where we just kind of claim it as our own. We take pride in it, almost as if we've earned it. And we forget who it came from or why it came. Truth. 
The gospel, the word of God, they are not just gifts of affection from God to you. They are gifts to be purposed. Kinsey was telling me about uh, a model of Christmas gift uh, buying for your kids. It's kind of it's cute, kind of practical, and it brings some purpose into this wild game of gift buying, right? And, and so you just, you, you think about your kids and you think, I'm going to get them something they want, something they need, something to wear, and something to read. Have you ever heard that? Right? And some of you are like, my kids would never be content with that. <laughs> they need so much more, Right? But it's a good way to bring purpose into this wild game of gift giving. Otherwise, your house is going to fill up with a ton of crap toys that you're going to be giving away in a month, right? Bring purpose to the gift. Truth is not another plaything to use when it's just convenient. It's not a toy to be used at church or to sound smart on social media. It is a tool that meets a need and is purposed to be used. Paul captures this with the word entrusted. That's what he says here, that to, to guard what has been entrusted to you. It literally means laid upon. This, this truth that has been laid upon you, appointed to you. It's an appointed gift to you from the giver. And it's been entrusted not just to have, but to use. To use for the preservation of your own faith. To use for the expansion of God's kingdom, a.k.a. reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why we guard it so deeply and why we take it so seriously. And if you haven't caught it yet, Paul's painting a picture here, right? He's given us another picture because he uses the word guard, which literally means to keep protective eyes on. And then he also uses the word uh, avoid. Like we guard what's been entrusted to us and we avoid everything that's opposite of that. The word off, uh, avoid literally means to turn away. So I don't think we can underestimate how much of guarding truth simply comes down to your eyes. It comes down to your attention. It comes down to your focus. It comes down to your gaze. So much of guarding truth comes down to your eyes. And this is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 22, that the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. What you bring in, what you focus on, what you dwell on, this is what you become. So focus on the good things, focus on truth, focus on good theology, and by that way, you would avoid everything else. You can't look at both at the same time. Or at least you shouldn't try. Now, all that to say, there are many Christians who still have a spoken desire for truth, but they have wandering eyes, myself included at times. They want to be seen as intellects. We want to be seen as cultured, uh, inclusive. We try to bend the truth so it fits the masses and fits the feelings of our friends, but, but we end up losing ourselves in the process. Truth bending, it's the game of the rhetoric among us, right? And that's the fourth observation, is what we're talking about here. The threat here is this empty rhetoric, and that's what he says. He says to avoid irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. Empty speech, right? Of irreverent and empty speech. This is the rhetoric that he's saying to avoid. Irreverent simply means not sacred, unhallowed. That's common. There's nothing unique about it. An empty speech is literally just chatterings, babblings. Contradictions in the Greek, that word literally means, uh, it's literally the word antithesis. It's the very opposite of truth. All of which, if you carry them out, as he says in verse 21, by professing it, some people have departed from the faith. And I think we've been around this modern era enough to notice some trends here. This rhetoric has kind of anchored in. that There is a loud, common, irreverent, and ungrounded rhetoric of our day. It's here, it's present. 
At best, it nitpicks scriptures and uses standalone verses to justify the rhetoric, which, by the way, is a tactic world leaders and dictators and cult leaders and false prophets have been using forever to deceive people. Satan, the best one, who distorted God's word ever so slightly, just enough to sound possibly true, and he's still in that work of distorting truth just enough to keep gently nudging people back on the wide path to hell. At its worst, this modern rhetoric criticizes and curses and hates upon timeless biblical truths that God engineered himself for human flourishing. And it's considered, you know, God's truth is considered out of date or out of touch or culturally irrelevant. And I think through the course of this preaching series, we've, we've took an honest assessment of how this rhetoric has impacted our churches, also impacted our younger generations. It's taken a hit. It's pretty messy. Our young people now are really struggling deeply with finding any sense of truth and meaning, right? And many of you are thinking, well, Adam, you're a young person. I was like, I know, but time travels way faster now than it did even when I was a kid, right? So when it comes to culture, I'm way older than a 20-year-old right now. Time moves that fast now, and it's messy, and it's hard. I think there's a lot of Christians who, who are more often getting lost in, in the pointless debates and empty chatterings. They think they're doing their part, but they're just perpetuating the issue. They're gaining no ground for the gospel. And then there's a world of Christians, like many of you, myself included, who we're trying to walk the lines with grace and truth. We are. We know what we've been called to. And we're trying to do it to a world that has manipulated truth so much that now it's just not, you know, easy disagreement. Now disagreement means hatred. That's how the rhetoric has, has turned this all. Right? For me to stand on biblical values or to be pro-life or to value complementarianism in a marriage or to not support BLM or to believe that marriage is God's design for one man and one woman doesn't mean I disagree with you. It means I hate you. And it means I'm a racist and a sexist. That's how the rhetoric takes it. That's what we're confronted against. And you try to enter in with grace and truth in a way that it actually has effect for the gospel. It's a challenge. And to be honest, I think the church has done it pretty wrong. I think there's a lot that we need to learn and a lot that we need to improve if we really want to reach this rhetoric and the people of it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This rhetoric is on everybody's minds, right? We had a, uh, we had a, a new members class, and we had 15, 20 people just sitting there. And it wasn't even a thing that we were talking about. We just had a break, and then during that break for about 20 to 30 minutes, one mom said that, you know, her daughter, her daughter was confronted this, with this thing at the school. And then it just opened up this conversation that everyone was involved in, right? And it was just unsolicited. It wasn't even intentional. It just happened. Why? Because it's on everybody's minds. We've mentioned it quite a few times in First Timothy. And I know exactly where all your minds went because it is the rhetoric that we all live in right now. It's right there, right? I mean, it's everywhere. We're confronted with it on a daily basis every time the government or schools or churches or communities continue to bound down to it as social media and every major company endorses it and promotes it and advertises it. And the question is left, what do we do? What are we to do as the church and body of Christ? What are we to do? Is it enough to just be frustrated about it and stay out of it? Is it enough to just not give them my business? What do we do? Don't want to spend the rest of our time talking about that. 
And the first thing I want you to know is that your pastoral staff, we are currently praying through and creating a way to provide regular training and encouragement in this area. Not to perpetuate the issue, but to honestly ask, how can the church enter in in a way that reaches people for the gospel? It's heavy on our hearts. It's something we desire to address heavily in the regular flow of ministry and discipleship at FBN. And so kind of stay tuned to that, okay? Um, I just wanted to plug that for you real fast and just let you know that we are being intentional about it and creating an opportunity. Second thing is this, as we end our time together in this message and in this letter, and I want to give you just two of what I believe are the most important reminders we need to represent truth in our context. This is what we need. These are what we need to get our heads out of the spaces of pointless chatter and to actually start addressing the core issue of it all. The core issue isn't complex. It's the world needs Jesus. That's it. The world needs the gospel. And he's called his church to be himself to this world. We are the picture of Jesus that this world is going to get. Okay? It's not complex. And so what I'm about to tell you is also not that complex. The two most important reminders that we need to remember as a church is simply this. First of all, we must have a burden for the gospel. There must be a burden for the gospel. Do you care if people know the Lord? Do you have passion to see people grow in faith? Do you care? There's a burden for the gospel. The Apostle Paul had this burden that he extended to Timothy, and that same burden is shared for us. And we've talked a lot about people who depart from the faith, and I think that's a real threat. But I think even before that, there's not just a departing of faith, but there's also a departing of passion. And I think this is quite present in the American church, and dare I say even this church, because we're in America. I think just think it's something that we all struggle with and need to fight against. It's the greatest threat to passion for the gospel. There's a lot of threats, by the way, but I'm going to go ahead and just say this, and we're going to camp out here for just a second. The greatest threat for the gospel, the greatest threat to passion for the gospel is Christian entitlement. It's one of the greatest threats. As if somehow we have earned the right and freedom to be Christian, and so instead of being filled with passion and responsibility to reach this world for Christ, we expect all of them to accommodate us. Don't you dare infringe upon my Christian freedom. That's how we see it. And Paul corrects this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 12 and then also verses 19 through 23. A little context here. The apostle Paul is saying, I have the right to have a wife. I have the right to be paid for my work as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But this is what he says about all of this as he's defending his own rights. He says in verse 12, if others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure so that we will not hinder the gospel of Christ. He goes on to say, in verse 19, Although I am free from all and not any one slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. Now I want you to stop there for a second. I think a lot of Ameri the American church spends its entire life defending verse 19a. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, so don't even try. I got my freedoms. I got my rights. Don't even go there. And Paul says, if you want to win people over, then you give that up. Instead, I've made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. And he expounds on that. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. 
To those under the law, I'll paraphrase it here, or just skim through, I became like one under the law. To those who are without the law, I became like one who is without the law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may be every possible means to save some. Now I do all of this because of the gospel so that I might share in the blessings. That's what a burden for the gospel plays out to and we cannot let our gospel passion be consumed by self-preservation of personal rights and freedoms and preferences. And I pray that today we are reminded of the fact that even though we have everything because of the gospel, we also give up everything because of the gospel. You are entitled to nothing. I'm entitled to nothing. My freedoms, my rights, these are nothing in Jesus Christ. They're not a thing. My preferences are not a thing in Jesus Christ. The gospel inspires us to give up of ourselves so that we might reach others for him. And we spend a lot of time fighting for our rights and our freedoms and our preferences. That's, our, that's the chief way that the church seems to react to the rhetoric around us. And it does not have effect. It doesn't work. So we've got to change our strategy. The second part to this is this. That if you actually want to have a burden for the gospel, what it will require is a denial of self. It will require a denial of self. We will not reach the world, the community, the younger generations if we seek only to preserve what we want and what we like. And it's a stream throughout all of the scriptures. Our self is the greatest hindrance to God's working among us. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. Right? Self-denial is key to actual discipleship and actual following Jesus and becoming more like Jesus. It, it, it's there even in the verses that we don't often see it, right? Uh, famous verses like Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him or know him and he will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. Self is the greatest hindrance to the working of God in your life, to the greatest hindrance to the extension of the gospel of hope to the people around us. Through the span of the scriptures, self-adoration and self-preservation, they've only proven to completely hinder humanity's trust and reliance on God and passion to live for the gospel. And so in order to combat self, we've got to level the playing field. Remove the entitlement, We've got to level the playing field. Self is the greatest enemy to a sincere faith. Listen, self is the greatest false doctrine. And we are all prone to it. It's the greatest false, false doctrine. Not homosexuality. It's not feminism. It's not racism. It's not the vaccine. It's not this generation or that generation. It's not Hollywood. It's not the Democrats. It is self. And we're all prone to it. It was the very first false teaching in all of human creation, and it will be the very last. And it will look different from age to age, but the cause will always be the same, and so will the cure. It's Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. Christians are wasting away in frustration and self-pity 
We're fighting in all of the arenas without any grace, without any extension of hope. And I think if you cut deep enough, what you find is not a genuine hope for the lost, but an entitlement that is just feeling threatened and is on the defense. This doesn't mean, by the way, that we can't actually represent truth in these arenas. All I'm saying is we've got to change our strategy. What we're doing isn't working. And so I have two stories to just kind of paint that picture for you, if that's okay. Uh, there was one story of a man in California. He, uh, he felt God's burden to enter into the arena of the pro-life movement. And he wanted to do something. He wanted to extend the hope of Christ to people, right? And so, as you would imagine, he made his sign that said, you know, you know God hates you if you get an abortion. And he went out and he just yelled at every. He didn't do any of that, right? He made a sign. He got his lawn chair and he got his drink and he made a sign that just simply said this. God loves you and he loves your baby too. That was it. And he went and he just posted up and he just had great conversations and women who were in their place of crisis just began to give their hearts to Jesus Christ. He posted up outside of Planned Parenthood and their business started taking a hit and so somehow they were able to get this man arrested. He went to jail, led more people to Jesus Christ. I heard him on the radio just declaring God's goodness and graciousness to everything. There's just a sincerity to this guy. Sincere. Sincere faith. Extended hope. He wasn't threatened. He wasn't on the defense. He just did what he could to extend hope to people in crisis. It's a whole different strategy than what most people take. He did in that little bit of time far more than what so many people do in, in years and years. He wasn't yelling. He wasn't throwing a fit. He wasn't picketing. He wasn't doing any of that. I'm not saying there's not a place for that sometimes, I guess, but there's just always a better way. And his way was the better way, and it led to life change. Another story, um, I read this in a book called uh, Faith for Exiles, and it was just about all of these young people who, uh, um, it was the researcher from, the lead researcher from the Barna Group, and they do research all the time about the younger generations, and instead of focusing on the reasons all the young people are leaving the church, they focused on why the young people are staying in church, and they call these people resilient disciples, which I love that, resilient disciples, that's what we want to be, that's what we want to become, and he shared the story about how he was um, um, invited to this conference. There's this older guy, this baby boomer, who just has a heart for young people and wanted to invite a, a big timer in just in, to encourage the young people, right? And so he had this conference at his church. He's just a lay person, not even the pastor. He just had this conference. And, and so this guy from Barna Research came, and he just peppered the, the people with statistics, right? This is why everybody's leaving the church, blah, 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 blah. And it's just, he just peppered. And you could see all of these young people, their eyes were just glazing over, right? Because at some point in time, it just feels academic, and they don't really care about that at a conference, right? But there was one guy who was moved. And so he got down, and he could kind of just feel the weight of having a message that didn't really connect. This one guy who set up the conference, right, this boomer, he got up. And he, with tears in his eyes, was so moved by the research, so moved by what was happening, that he addressed a room full, hundreds of young people. And what he did is he apologized to them on behalf of his whole generation for the part that they played in the rhetoric that's happening today. And by identifying himself as part of the problem, he could be part of the solution. That stuff doesn't happen. That is unique. It should be happening way more. But I don't hear about that stuff very often. I don't hear about either of these people very often. And it's like when they do it, they just make the national news because it's so, it's so shocking 
but they're just ahead of the curve. They've changed their strategy. They know that if they want to be a part of the problem, a uh, part of the solution, they've got to identify themselves as part of the problem. They've got to level the playing field, understand that self is the culprit, and focus the heart and the attention on the souls of the people. It's a burden for the gospel. That's what it is. It's self-denial. It's a burden for the gospel. It is truth applied in love, and it is sincerity and faith, and we have got to change our strategy from frustration to hope, from defensiveness to a, to a burden for the gospel, from Jonah, who looks upon the hill at all of the Ninevites and, and does not care if they go to hell, smug about it even. We've got to change from Jonah to Paul who had a burden for the gospel and gave up himself, even though he had his rights, he gave them up because of the gospel so that he might extend the gospel to those who need it. We have got to follow in line with that. And listen, I, I, there is little I care about more than this. I mean, it's just little, little I care about more than this. And so if this is you, if this is a, something that you feel convicted by, something that you feel strongly, you've got to reach out to us. If there was two of you, honestly, it's so important that I would, I would give so much of my time to just collaborating and discussing and, and, and creating ways to reach the next generations with the hope of truth in a way that actually resonates with them. If there was two of you or if there was 30 of you, we would make that happen because it's that important. That man in a moment impacted culture and, and the young generations more than so much of the American church has done in years. He did it more in a moment right then and there at that conference. We've got to learn from these stories, and we've got to step in to those zones of using grace and truth in a way that connects with people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you have a burden for the gospel? And are you willing to give up a little bit of yourself to actually extend that to someone else in a way that they would receive it? That's the call this morning. Let's close in prayer. Our God, thank you for the message of 1 Timothy. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the gift that you've entrusted us with. And I pray now that we would be obedient to what you called us to do, which is to take that truth and extend it to a world that needs it. And to use the facilities of the Holy Spirit and of the church and of our Christian community to create and dream ways to impact this rhetoric and the people of it in a way that promotes hope and promotes the gospel of Jesus Christ rather than just continues to draw the dividing line between the church and the rhetoric because we don't know how to do anything but other, other than to just get frustrated about it all. Break our hearts for the people around us. Break our hearts for the sin uh, um, that prevails in this in this society, in this culture. Break our hearts for our contribution to it. And from there, would you develop within us a wonderful burden for the gospel? And would we prove that burden by the way that we give up of ourselves and our rights and our freedoms and our preferences, the way we just give these things up so that we might not hinder others to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Do that work among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to go into just a small time of response, and during this time, this is a time for you to pray, and we're wrapping up a whole series here. I would have guessed God's pinpointed quite a few things, you know, over the last year, uh, but even today, 
even today, if there is something that he's spoken to your heart, I pray that you would take a moment to pray about that. But also what we have is just an opportunity to assess, assess our burden for the gospel. When was the last time you actually thought, do I care if lost people come to know Christ? Do I care about whether or not people go to heaven or hell? I mean, that's a simple question that can have dramatic impact. And through that assessment, evaluate everything else that you've been doing, all the things you give your time to, all the things you invest in, doesn't matter at all when it comes to the gospel. And secondly, as you think about all that, think honestly about how you yourself get in the way. How does self, the false doctrine of self, rear its head and keep you from extending that hope? Whatever all, however all that boils down, if there's that one thing that God would have you do to help remedy, you've got to chase it, you've got to do it, you've got to obey it. And he'll do more with that little bit than, than what so many people are doing with their so much. If we let God do it, he can take a little and go a long way. So would you give that to him today? Focus on that. Pray about that. Thanks.